Daniel. We're going to be picking back up in chapter 9. guys a second back there to get these outer screens powered up is this a technical difficulty beyond repair this morning you think guys what do you think there's hope bingo there is hope right there okay so we left off let's see and I'm man I'm have you ever run into uh, these technical difficulties that you never intended to run into Does anybody else have that on occasion? Well, yeah, so my my handy little uh, iPad here logged me out of my um, 360 uh, program where I pull in my PowerPoint and such. So I'm down here this morning trying to log back into it, and I put in the password, and and it says wrong password. And so I remembered, oh, yeah, I think I did change that password because it flagged me one time saying that it had been discovered on the dark web or something like this. And so I probably updated it on a different computer or something like that. It hasn't reached to this one yet. So I'm not certain if the PowerPoint I have is the most frequently updated PowerPoint that I'd put together. We're going to find out as we go along this journey together this morning. The good Lord willing, it, it, it did capture the last saving of the PowerPoint. We shall we shall see. But again, this morning, as we continue in our study of Daniel 9, um, if you recall, we left off last week in verse 24. So by a simple way of review, I just want to emphasize a few key highlights. Read verses 20 down through verse 23, kind of tap us back into 24. Maybe say a few pithy comments along the way to kind of reconnect us with the flow that we had. You're going to have to go back and listen to that sermon if you missed it, uh, because I don't have time to recap all of that. Um, however, the first thing we need to remember by way of connecting to our context here is that um, Daniel and the entirety of chapter 9 is in prayer. He's discovered he's had his nose in the book, particularly the book of Jeremiah. He sees that the time of their deportation is drawing nigh, that it was 70 years it was prophesied. He starts doing the math, and he starts praying. And so... In response to his prayer, uh, we see verse 20 down through verse 27 as a reply from God through the angel Gabriel uh, giving a response to Daniel with regard to this knowledge that he has received. And secondly, Daniel prayed uh, in particular that Yahweh would would give his people a capacity to recognize their need for their great forgiveness of their sins. Um... And, and, and that God would glorify himself, that God would glorify his own name through the letting of his people go, through the reviving of temple practice and worship, that God's name would be greatly magnified as a result of doing that. Now, let me read a few verses here for us that will, again, connect us with that very important aspect, the reviving of temple worship and practice within Daniel's prayer specifically, and thus the revelation that he's going to get and the importance that we need to keep these 
connected. In verse 17, so now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, and here I've kind of highlighted it to make it easy to see. Let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. So the sanctuary would be the temple. So Daniel's praying in particular that God's face would shine. And when God's face is shining on something, it's the idea of showing favor towards. God, show your favor towards your sanctuary that's been left desolate as a result of our deportation. Daniel's praying for a revival of temple practice and worship. And in verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. And again, we see in verse 19, this same concept, he's praying for the city, and Daniel's city, which is God's city, would be the city of Jerusalem, right? O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. So without question, Daniel's recognition that the 70 years is upon his people, he's praying, and he's praying that God would have a revival of temple practice and worship and that God would restore the city of Jerusalem and his people that are called by his name. So this is what we've seen in these three verses in 17, 18, and 19. The letting of your face shine on your desolate sanctuary, your city, which is called by your name, your city, your people, the Jewish people that are again called by the name of God. And then in verse 20, he says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. So Daniel makes a very direct connection with who his people are. It's the nation of Israel. It's the Jewish people. So the reply that he gets from Gabriel is a very Jewish-oriented reply. The prophecy is going to be particularly with relevance. Uh, to the Jewish people and Jerusalem and the sanctuary of God. My people Israel, I'm presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God. So are you following Daniel with what he's been praying for specifically? He recognizes from Jeremiah, 70 years is upon us. He starts praying about this. And the things that he's praying in particular are for the things we've just highlighted, that God would cause his favor to shine upon Jerusalem, a reestablishment of temple worship and practice, and God, do this for your own namesake. These are your people called by your name. Make your name great. Do it on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, Daniel's God. And so then we picked up in verse 21. While he was still speaking in prayer, while the prayers and the supplications were going up, Gabriel appears, whom he had seen previously, and Gabriel basically tells Daniel to put your thinking cap on. And we, did a, we kind of did a recap of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4, and Daniel chapter 7, and the things that Daniel would have been thinking with regard to the revival of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. You saw in the, the, the dream of chapter 2, a stone cut without hands, demolishing the powers of men, and a kingdom being established, a, a mountain that was being established. And Daniel's praying that the holy mountain of God would be established. It seems that Daniel has almost um, brought together this, the, these, this idea that God's going to be restoring his, his people, reviving of temple worship, and 
some of the, the uh, prophetic revelation that he had been gleaning along the way in those 70 years from Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Nebuchadnezzar's pronouncement of the greatness of God and that his kingdom would endure forever. And then the visions that he received in chapter 7. Daniel seems to be bringing these concepts together. And so Gabriel says uh, that he has come to give instruction to Daniel. I've come forth to give you insight with understanding. In other words, Daniel, there's some things that you need to learn that are even beyond the previous revelations that you've been seen. And that's what I've come to give you. So at the beginning of your supplications, and remember last week we talked specifically that sometimes you have not because you ask not. At the beginning of your supplications, when Daniel started praying, God's plan went into motion. And so don't fail to see God's plan come into motion because we pray not. Sometimes we have not because we pray not, James 4, 2. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you for your highly esteemed. And again, I think the reason Daniel is highly esteemed is because Daniel was a man that was known to be a man of God. Daniel walked with God. Daniel's nose was in the book when he was a young lad, and he would not defile himself. And when he was an older man, his nose was still in the book, studying the book of Jeremiah. Daniel's highly esteemed because he had a fear of the Lord. That's how you become highly esteemed from heaven's perspective, as you fear the Lord and you walk in his ways. It's that simple. We sang a song that says, makes wise the simple. If you want to be wise beyond your own understanding, just simply trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. He says, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision, which is exactly what we need to be doing as well. Daniel needed to do that and we do as well, gaining understanding. So we left off here in verse 24. Notice verse 24. He continues, he continues. He says, seven weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, Daniel had already previously said who his people were, right? Right here in 920. See it right here? Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Just making another connection point for us all right here. So 70 weeks have been decreed for your, for your people. So this is the nation of Israel and your holy city, the city that, God, that he's been praying to God to bring, into, to, to bring revival to, the city which would be the city of what? Jerusalem. To finish, now here's where we get to the, for what end? To what end? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And notice again, without too much ado, and I say this because there's been a tendency to want to conflate um, some theological concepts in our day and age, and it didn't just start in our day and age. There's been some, some, uh, some, some attempts to conflate the nation of Israel, which would be your people, the people of Israel, your holy city, Jerusalem, to conflate the nation of Israel as finding its fulfillment and being absolved with inside the church. That the church today is the new Israel. There's been a lot, not maybe a, well, I say a lot, there's been a lot of individuals who have tried to promote that theological thread 
that the church today is the new Israel. And thus, all the yet unfulfilled promises you see in the Old Testament will find their fulfillment within the church. And as such, the way that we would need to go about understanding a passage like this from Gabriel, from God to Gabriel to Daniel, would be that God's going to fulfill this in the church. And there are some groups out there that say that God has already done this. He's actually already, what we're going to be looking at and studying in Daniel chapter 9, they're going to say that God has already fulfilled all of this within the church. There's no future hope for the nation of Israel that what Daniel was praying for in his time, it was a view towards the nation of Israel. But when God brought Christ, Jesus, into the world, that Jesus, as it says, he broke down the, the, the dividing wall, the barrier that existed between Israel and the, and the Gentiles, and now they're together they're just one man in Christ. And so the church is Israel, okay? You're going to find out through my teaching through this passage, if you haven't already figured that out, um, I reject that, that hermeneutic that would lean, lead itself towards that uh, uh, evaluation of the scriptures. I believe that God has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel. And so what I want to do, before we get too deep into um, this passage this morning, is I want to affirm that conclusion by showing you also that I believe the Apostle Paul affirms this. And that the Apostle Paul would be affirming what Daniel was affirming in Daniel chapter 9. That the Apostle Paul believed that there was a future for Daniel's people and for Daniel's holy city, the city of Jerusalem. And so I want to show you that by having you look on the screen or perhaps turn the pages to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to look at a few passages here in Romans chapter 11. And again, this is where I believe the Apostle Paul makes clear for us that, this, that, this, um, that there is a definitive distinction between the nation of Israel and God's people within the church today. That God still has a plan for the nation of Israel and that these prophecies that Gabriel gives to Daniel, we're still looking for them to come to fruition. Notice Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through verse 29. For I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery. And who is Paul writing to here? He's, well, he's writing to brethren. I do not want you, brethren. He's writing to the Roman church. So these would be probably Gentile believers within the Roman church to whom Paul is writing. I do not want you, brethren, Roman church, believers within the Roman church, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation now to get a little bit broader context as to what paul is talking about here the need for great humility in the in this context of romans 11 he's reminding them that they as gentiles have been grafted into the rich root of israel and to not become arrogant that god broke off branches the, the nation of israel that they could be grafted in Go and read the broader context of Romans chapter 11. He says, there's a mystery you need to be informed about, and it's right here, that. What is this mystery, Paul? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, to begin with, it would seem rather odd for the Apostle Paul to be making a distinction between brethren and the nation of Israel if indeed they were intended now to be one together. 
He's making a very clear distinction. He's writing to brethren. He wants them to understand something about a mystery that they previously haven't been informed about. So that they're wise, so they're, they're humble in their estimation of God's showing them great favor and grace. And that, again, that mystery is that the nation of Israel has a partial hardening upon them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, verse 26, the beginning of 26, all Israel, again, making a direct mention to the nation of Israel, will be saved. So, the reality of this partial hardening that the Apostle Paul wants them to not be ignorant of, wants them to be informed about, is that which has happened to, and I'll put it this way, Daniel's people and against Daniel's holy city. The nation of Israel, as mentioned in Romans 11 twice, has happened to Israel, and so all Israel will be saved. And when we drop down contextually, we're going to see that this hardening that has happened to them is that which has a remedy that is conditioned on time. Notice this when we go back to the same chapter 11, and we just drop backwards a little bit here to verse 7. Notice what Paul says here. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking and has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So again, he brings in this idea of hardened, and so we already saw that the nation of Israel has been hardened. The rest have been hardened. What, what Israel was seeking, he says, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. And what they were seeking was a form of righteousness. Israel was seeking a righteousness, but unfortunately they were seeking one that was based on works, the, keep, the keeping of law, the keeping of good deeds. The Apostle Paul in this little passage here is letting them know that that doesn't work that way. They did not obtain that, but those who were chosen obtained it. So there's something about being chosen and the obtaining of the righteousness that they were seeking. And so Paul uh, continues in verse 8 to explain the how and the why of this spiritual hardening and why this has been such a, perhaps, a difficulty for this nation Israel. He says in verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. And then he explains what that is. Quoting from the Old Testament, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. Down to the day that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. God has given the nation of Israel a spiritual hardening and he refers to it here as a spirit of stupor. Now this, the word in the Greek that we get translated spirit of stupor is a word that literally means a numbness resulting from a sting, a numbness resulting from a sting. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, I shouldn't how many of you, every single one of you have been to the dentist, right, and you've had a cavity filled, right, and they stick a needle in your gum, and then you can't feel anything. There's a, it, it, there's a numbness, thank the Lord, right? And it seems to me that, that that kind of a concept of a numbness is, in the spiritual sense, perhaps what this spiritual hardening looked like against the nation of Israel. They were numb to the reality that God had sent Christ Messiah to them, to his people, to be their Messiah, to be their Savior. God gave a numbness. It says right there that God did this. 
just as it is written from the Old Testament. And again, this could be from Deuteronomy 29, 3 through 4, or perhaps from Isaiah 29, verse 10, both of which articulate this truth, that this was something that God did. God gave them a spirit of stupor, a numbness to spiritual reality. And what that looked like in particular was that they had eyes, but they could not see, ears to hear, and they could not hear the truth of who Christ was. And so they cried out, crucify him. And so the Roman soldiers, in keeping with their wish and their desire, they did that very thing. And this, if you will, it kind of explains a lot as we read through the Old Testament. I mean, how many times have you read through your Old Testament and then into your New Testament and you, and you start asking, how could they not get this? How could they not see that Jesus was the promised one? Jesus is doing things that only God could do. How could they not get this or see this? Can't they hear what he's saying? Why don't they understand? Well, I've done that on a few occasions, and it, we're reminded here uh, from the Apostle Paul that they were spiritually hardened. That's why. It made them numb to the reality of who Jesus, their Messiah, truly was. And I think we have to be very cognizant of this difficult truth that it was God who gave them this spirit of stupor. God takes credit for doing this. God gave them a spirit of stupor down to this very day and I'm going to say as we sit here today in 2020 that down to this very day is still very apropos since the crucifixion of their Messiah the nation of Israel has never repented the nation of Israel has never turned their eyes open or their ears open back to understanding and seeing who Jesus Christ truly really was as a matter of fact, the nation of Israel is comprised primarily of atheists today that look back at their Old Testament scriptures and perhaps think that they're nothing more than campfire stories that were passed down through the ages. Now, you still have some very orthodox Jews that go to the Wailing Wall and they're still crying out to God. They don't believe that those were campfire stories at all and they're still praying that God would send their Messiah because they rejected Jesus. Clearly, the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree. That can't be the Messiah. So this stupor that goes down to this very day is a reality that is happening even today to the nation of Israel. And the only ones of the nation of Israel who perhaps are being saved currently during this time of spiritual hardening, during this time of what we call the church age, are those who were particularly chosen by God. The rest hardened and we see this this isn't something that we have to grope in the dark for we see this very plainly down to this very day and it was David himself who says notice in verse 9 let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever David says of the nation of Israel that the very thing that was to be a, a blessing, their table. When you think of the table that was set before the nation of Israel, I mean, these were the individuals that had the oracles of God given to them directly. The, the table that was before the nation of Israel, the blessings from the hand of God, the, the, um, all the stories that weren't campfire stories of being redeemed from Egypt, by the mighty hand of God and the angel of death coming through all the plagues. They knew all these things, the crossing of the Red Sea 
etc., etc. We could go and we could just march our way through the Old Testament. This was the table that God laid out before them, and it became to them a stumbling block, a retribution. They had eyes to see not. And as Paul mentioned, it's down to this very day. Israel's partial hardening, as Paul says, was prophesied. It had to happen. But one of the things that I want you to take away from this is the Apostle Paul clearly articulates that God's not finished with the nation of Israel. Israel did not, the church did not become the new Israel. There are saved people within the church of Jesus Christ. It's called the church, the ecclesia. And the apostle Paul is writing to the church. And he doesn't want those brethren to be misunderstood about some truth that has happened to the nation Israel. But God's not finished with them yet. Just like the apostle Paul understood from Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24 down through verse 27. And so back to Romans 11, notice what Paul says there at the end of verse 25 and 26. Again, brethren, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you're not wise, so that you're, you can stay humble. God has done something. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. But notice, until. What's the word until it give us some insight into? It lets us know that there's a time that's coming when that partial hardening is going to have run its course. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and what most people articulate about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in is the completion of what we call the church age. The ingathering of the Gentile nations. The Gentiles coming into the fold, being grafted into the rich roots. See the broader context of, of Romans chapter 11. And when that last Gentile has come in, the fullness, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, let's say there's a, from heaven's perspective, there's a day when there's the last Gentile that gets saved. Hallelujah. Then the next thing on the, on the timeline for God's church is a rapture of his church. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But notice that he doesn't, he doesn't end this with this. Because of, he's, he's mentioning the until, this partial hardening is going to happen until this happens, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then what happens? And so all Israel makes a clear distinction. There is Israel and there's a church. They ha- the church is not the new Israel. God's got a plan for the church. There's a great ingathering that's happening through the preaching of the gospel. But just like Daniel chapter 9 articulates, God has a future plan for the nation of Israel shining his face upon his desolate sanctuary and the reestablishing of his holy city. The Apostle Paul, I think, has that same vision as well. What do you think? I don't see how there's any other way to articulate this. there's, There's no other way to articulate this other than to start spiritualizing the text and making words say things that they don't actually say in order to make it fit what you want it to fit. And as the great Shapiro once said, if it don't fit, you must acquit. Let that old view go. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. There's a time when all Israel will be saved. When that spiritual numbness, when that, the indifference and the, the hardening of their eyes to see not and their ears to hear not 
will come to an end. Daniel's people will at last experience the amazing salvation, grace, and work of God. Amen? And when that happens, notice how what the rest of what the Apostle Paul says here in 1126b and following sounds an awful lot like what we're seeing here in Daniel chapter 9. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and this part in particular, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is something God's going to do. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So again, when you go to Daniel 9, 24, and you get to the two, it's for your people and your holy city to do what? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make atonement for iniquity. So after all Israel gets saved, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, all Israel will be saved. Then, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove. God's going to do something. He's going to remove ungodliness from Jacob, the nation of Israel. Daniel's prophecy from Gabriel, from God to Gabriel to Daniel, is talking about the finishing of transgression, the ending of sin, and an atonement for iniquity. Are you following me? So I think that Daniel perhaps would reject um, any kind of hermeneutic that would say, hey, actually, uh, actually, Daniel just kind of had a partial understanding of something here from Gabriel. No, Gabriel was actually giving him a further inclination and understanding of what he had already seen in chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 7. Here in chapter 9, he's saying, no, put your thinking cap on. You need to understand something even greater than what I've previously shown you. The Apostle Paul, which is that God has a, has a plan for the nation of Israel, for your people and your holy city. God's got a plan for the nation of Israel. Because, back to Romans 11, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the nation of Israel, they're enemies for your sake. Again, making a distinction between the church that's being saved by the gospel and the nation of Israel. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, the nation of Israel, they're enemies for your sake, but... From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. So you might say that they are beloved enemies of God. God currently has a partial hardening on them, and those who die in that partial hardening die apart from Christ, and they will spend an eternity in hell just like everybody else who dies apart from Christ. But a time is coming when God's going to turn his favor back to his people and his city and his sanctuary. For the sake of, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So we need to get the notion that the church is the new Israel completely out of our mind. Daniel would, would not affirm that. The apostle Paul would not affirm that. And we also need to not affirm that. And thus, we look for an understanding of Scripture in light of such understanding. Amen? And again, who's the one that does the saving? It's God. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God's callings 
as we saw right here, for the nation of Israel are irrevocable. God has a plan for the nation. The Apostle Paul articulates it very clearly in Romans 11. Daniel is getting it from Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9 as we are walking through this together. So the Apostle Paul affirms Daniel's teaching, future for the nation of Israel. And what we saw in Romans 11 lets us know that God's plan for dealing with Israel as a nation will begin after the rapture of the church when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And if I were to ask you to perhaps take a stab in the dark as to what you might see over in the book of Revelation regarding such truth, uh, what do you think you might see? Well, what you see in the book of Revelation is exactly this, that after the rapture of the church, God graciously saves all Israel. When you go to the book, Revelation chapter 6, we don't have time to go there this morning, that's another sermon for another day but when you go to revelation chapter 6 and you start seeing the, the 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 opening of the seals and you get to the sixth seal in revelation chapter 6 you see that the great day of the wrath of the lamb has come the pouring out of the wrath of the lamb and that's also the the exact same time as the rapturing of the church of jesus christ and what do you see immediately after that in the book of revelation get to chapter 7 you see all Israel getting saved. You see a representation of 12,000 saved from each of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel miraculously saved by God. And I believe that those 12,000 from each 12 tribes is a fulfillment of what the Apostle Paul talks about here when the Gentiles, has, when the last uh, gathering of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. I believe that's exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind right there in Revelation chapter 7. You see a fulfillment of that when 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, representative of all Israel, all the tribes of Israel, individuals from each of the tribes of the nation of Israel, miraculously saved by God, when? Let me see if I can go back here, right here. When the Deliverer comes, Jesus comes back again, and he's going to land there in Zion on the holy mountain, when Jesus comes back again, he does exactly what God said he was going to do, and all Israel will get saved. Isn't that beautiful? Have I given you a few things to think about this morning? A few things to chew on, a few things to chase down. I hope so. This book, the Word of God, the Bible, is truly an amazing book. And uh, we can spend the rest of our lives digging into it, and we'll never completely have the fullness of it. Amen? But we have the mind of God. Now, back to Daniel 9, 24, we see these six purposes, right? The two right here, to finish the transgression. So the first three, I've kind of laid out so it's a little bit easier to see. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make atonement for iniquity. So the finishing of the transgression would be the idea of ending rebellion against God. To make an end of sin, the word sin in the Greek is actually plural, so it, it, if it's translated sins with an S in your translation, the New American, I believe, just has uh, to make an end of sin right here. 
could have had an S because this word is, excuse me, I, don't, I think I said Greek. I shouldn't have said Greek in the Hebrew. It's in the plural. And so to, to make an end of sins, uh, the human failure to obey God, this is something God's going to do for his people and his holy city, for the nation of Israel. He's going to bring in, bring in trans, an, 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 finish the transgression and end of sins, plural, and to make atonement for iniquity. And this time is going to be a time when God will provide an atonement that will cover uh, for their human wickedness. And so these first three, if you kind of piece these together, it's a time when God's going to deal with sin in totality by providing a means for atonement, to make atonement for iniquity. And I really believe that what Daniel sees here, but perhaps doesn't see fully and completely, what the Spirit of God speaks of here has, has to be the coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ when he, in, in through his life, made atonement for the sins at the cross in general for all who would come to him, for God's chosen. Because it was on the cross that Christ dealt with sins, right? I mean, it was at the cross of Calvary when Jesus paid the full price, the full application that was required in the word of God and the law of God. Jesus met that. He was the righteous one of God. And so, at his first coming, it seems that these first three, in a very broad, general way, were made available, both for the church and also for the nation of Israel, for anyone of the nation of Israel, say like the Apostle Paul, were there Je Je uh, excuse me, Jews that were getting saved at that time? Well, of course there were. You've got the apostles, and you had some other Jews that were turning to faith in Jesus Christ. But what did it say there in Romans chapter 11? But what happened to the rest? They were hardened, as it is down to this very day. So there were a select few, it seems, that God showed his grace and made application of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so what, by the way, what happens to the Apostle Paul whenever he gets saved, or let's say any of the other disciples, the apostles, or any of the Jewish people back in their day that got saved? Were they a part of the church, or were they still a part of the nation of Israel? Well, I'm going to say both. They became a part of the ecclesia, the called out ones. And if there are Jewish people alive on earth, when the rapture of the church happens, when the last Gentiles gathered in, they're going to be raptured up with the church. But they're still, ethnically speaking, they're of the nation of Israel, right? But all unsaved ethnic Israelites, they're not somehow enfolded into the church, just like any non-believer wouldn't be folded into the church. And just like any unbeliever, whether their, ethnic, their ethnicity is Jewish or not, when you die apart from Christ, absent from that body, you're going to be spending a time in eternity in hell, apart from God. Apart from Christ. So saved Jewish people from Christ onward are included in the church. But that doesn't in any way negate the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel, Daniel's people and Daniel's city and the sanctuary of God in the least. Those two are never to be conflated as being one and the same. So these first three seem very clearly to deal with the application of the first coming of Jesus Christ, making atonement for sins. And the larger and the fuller application of that 
with regard to the nation of Israel awaits his second coming. Are you following me? And then the last three deal with a future aspect of Christ's coming, namely aspects that we would expect to find uh, in what we would refer to as perhaps the eternal kingdom, the millennial kingdom being a kind of like an on-ramp to that eternal kingdom. So like in the, in the Gospels when it talks about in this age and the age to come. So in that age to come, that, that age that's yet to come is made up of an on-ramp of a millennial kingdom that just proceeds right into an eternal kingdom. That's both, both of those are the age to come. We're not somehow to make a distinction between a millennial kingdom and the age to come kingdom. There's just, it's one on-ramp. Millennial kingdom into the age to come kingdom. The kingdom that we see in, in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 7. A kingdom that will, that will endure forever and ever and ever. Again, these, the last three are things that we would expect to find in that eternal kingdom because we definitely don't see them now look at number four to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place so to bring in everlasting righteousness it's the idea of the the, the inaugura uh, inauguration of a new society in which righteousness prevails as we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, there's a beginning point um, for each of these kingdoms. So this idea of bringing in everlasting righteousness seems to have a very definitive beginning point with it, which I don't have that passage for you, but I was going to connect it to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, so just bear with me. You got your, you got your scriptures with you, right? So if you look at Daniel 2.35, a stone that struck the statue, and it says the word became, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, has a beginning point. The bringing in of everlasting righteousness has a particular beginning point, became a great mountain. In Daniel 7.21 and 22, I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until the Ancient of Days came. Seems to be a beginning point of the bringing in of everlasting righteousness in a kingdom that will endure forever and ever and have no end. Before that, there's the kingdoms of men. That stone is going to smash the kingdoms of men. There's a beginning point when that stone smashes the feet and the, and the kingdoms of man are completely demolished. But then there's a beginning point of when that everlasting righteousness, that eternal kingdom, begins. When the stone strikes the feet until the Ancient of Days came and passed judgment in favor of the saints, Daniel 7.22. And it says in Daniel 7.22, And the time arrived, very particular, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So until that time arrives, we might say, the bringing in of everlasting righteousness hasn't happened just yet. And what is that bringing in of everlasting righteousness waiting on? Well, it's waiting on a second advent of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ in his second advent, he's not going away anymore after that point in time. He's coming and he's staying. 
and he's going to inaugurate that kingdom. Daniel chapter 2, the, the rock that hit the, the, the statue that became a mountain filled the entire earth. He's going to be establishing a kingdom. It's going to start off as a millennial kingdom reign, and it's going to usher right into an eternal state that will go on forever and ever and ever. There's a point in time when that begins. Daniel 7, 22, the Ancient of Days came and passed judgment, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Does it look like in the world we're living in today that the saints are in possession of a kingdom and that King Jesus is reigning in our presence? Because that's what the text seems to indicate very plainly and very clearly. I'm going to answer with a resounding no. But when Jesus, do we believe Jesus is coming again for a second time? Yes, we do. And these are some of the things that are going to be happening when he comes again that second time. He is the rock that demolishes the, the powers and the kingdoms of this world. And he's going to establish an eternal kingdom that will endure forever and ever and ever and ever and have no end. And it was not said about, the, and that was not said about him after his first advent. In his first advent, he came to be a suffering servant as the prophet Isaiah talked about. In his second advent, he's coming to establish his kingdom just like the prophet Isaiah talked about. And sometimes in the prophet Isaiah, those Two mountains were like looking at it like this. And it's not until you get into the New Testament that you start actually seeing that there's a gap between the first advent and the second advent. But when you looked at it together in the book of Isaiah, it almost looked like it was one event, just like this. The New Testament gave us revelation that there was a first coming and a second coming. Amen? And I believe this is, this is part and parcel of what we're seeing through Daniel as well. The time arrived when the saints took possession. There's a time that's yet coming when Christ is going to be establishing his kingdom, the age yet to come, when the saints of God will, with him, take possession of said eternal kingdom and therein bringing in, bringing in, bringing in an everlasting righteousness that we do not see now. And also it's to seal up vision and prophecy, number five. To seal up vision and prophecy. This age yet to come where, where everlasting righteousness is normative will also provide the time and place to completely fulfill the vision and prophecy that God has for His people Israel and His earth. All of God's word will be thus fulfilled, if you will, sealed up. A sealing up of vision and a sealing up of prophecy, a putting a lid on it because its usage and its need are, are done and, and over. And it's at this time following the second advent of Christ that Christ himself is going to rule over the nations with justice and perfect righteousness and he himself will be the final yes and amen. And this is where I was connecting us with 1 Corinthians 13. I believe this is what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 down through verse 13. I believe it's a connecting with what he understood to be true from Daniel chapter 9. And the fifth point of what God's going to do with the sealing up of vision and prophecy with the coming of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that we're all very familiar with, but once we get past all of the great things of agape love, we're told in verse 8 that it just never fails. Agape love never fails. 
But notice as he continues, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now make a notice here. You've got right here prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. It says of prophecy and knowledge, these two right here. There's a, di- uh, there's a verb here in the Greek that's translated will be, well, done away. They will be, and the verb is done away. Right here, will be done away. But if you notice, there's a distinction made between prophecy and knowledge. They will be, future tense, done away. But tongues, there's a distinction made here. It's it's a different verb completely. They will cease, pao in the Greek. So there's a distinction made between the prophecy and the knowledge. The verb pao in the Greek is a, a, a verb that's, takes advantage of what's called a middle voice within, uh, within the Greek grammar. And the middle voice of a verb lets you know that the action of the verb takes place in and of itself. The action of this verb isn't waiting for something on the outside to cause it to engage, this action of the verb to engage on whatever its in, intended engagement point is. The, the action of a middle voice means that the, the action takes place in and of itself. It's the idea of a shelf life. And I've used this one on many occasions, but if I put a block of cheese right here on the pulpit and I told you, church, that cheese will rot. Now, you're not going to be surprised that I told you that cheese will rot. I'm going to open it up and just going to lay a block of cheese right here, and I'm going to say to you, in, in a short amount of time, let's give it a month, that cheese is going to rot, right? You're going to come back, it's going to have stuff growing all over it. It's going to have different colors and probably a nice odor to it, right? And it's just going to get worse. It's going to rot. It's going to die out. The goodness of that is going to die out in and of itself. Rot there is in a middle voice. It's not waiting for something to come from the outside and implode it and you know shoot things down on the cheese and cause the cheese to blow up. No, it's just going to rot. Middle voice is going to die out. It has a shelf life. That's what it's saying about tongues. Tongues has a shelf life. Pa'o, it's going to cease. But prophecy and knowledge, different verb. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul is talking about, excuse me, the Apostle Paul, I'm colluding, uh, Gabriel to Daniel. Daniel is talking about, when Gabriel gives Daniel this right here, that the sealing up of vision and prophecy, okay? I think this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 13 on dealing with prophecy and knowledge. Look at, look at verse 9. For we know in part, so there's know, here's knowledge, bring knowledge over to know, and it's in part, and we prophesy in part. So we already see by verse 9, he's not even dealing with tongues. He's already just put tongues aside, oh, it's going to cease, die away on its own. And we, and we see that happen in the first century church, it just died away all on its own. And you see that through the history through Josephus and others who wrote, they articulate this very reality that tongues ceased, it died out. Okay? But you notice in verse 9, he then starts talking about these other two, prophecy and knowledge. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Knowledge and prophecy. But when the perfect comes, the partial, and it's in part, in part, these partial things, which are knowledge and prophecy, 
just like it says, will be done away. When? Well, when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes in his second advent, he's going to seal up vision and prophecy. There's no longer going to be a need for vision and prophecy. They're going to be done away. Because the perfect has come. And he's established himself as the king from heaven who's going to be rightly ruling and reigning from his kingdom on earth with an everlasting righteousness as we see in Daniel 2, 4, and 7 that will have no end. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, second advent, Jesus ruling and reigning, face to face. Now I know in part, back to the partial, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see what Daniel, the revelation that God gave Daniel and Paul seems to be affirming this very truth himself. There will be a sealing up of vision and prophecy. They will be done away just like the Apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 13. And then the last thing, number six, is to anoint the most holy place. And I believe this is also a reference to the age, this age yet to come following the second advent, as I believe all these last three are, of a new and more glorious kingdom temple. Have you ever gone to Ezekiel and read the prophet Ezekiel from chapter 40 all the way to verse, chapter 48? Chapter 40 down through chapter 48 talks about this very restored temple in the millennial kingdom that will usher right into the eternal state and will be there forever and ever. Try to read Ezekiel 40 to 48 sometime today and make observation of the magnitude of this temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that has not happened yet. We're still looking. To, we haven't seen anything like this done yet. And unless God gave Ezekiel a, a bad prophet or Ezekiel really wasn't a prophet, prophet and he prophesied from God and the things he's saying aren't going to actually come to pass because somehow they got mis mysteriously and spiritually fulfilled in the church. Um, if that's the case, it's hard to know what, what to take true or not to take true. Clearly, the Apostle Paul was looking for that kingdom still yet to come. Then all Israel will be saved. And we see also in Ezekiel that this most holy place is there and given a new name. I'm not certain if I have it. I do. In Isaiah 62, 1-2, Zion, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth. Notice how this resembles so much of what we're seeing in Daniel, an everlasting righteousness. Until her righteousness goes forth like brightness, and her salvation, then all Israel will be saved like a torch that is burning. Have not seen that yet. The apostle Paul was anticipating it, and Daniel says it's going to come too. The nations will see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will 
designate. And then when you get to Ezekiel 48, remember I said go read Ezekiel 40 through chapter 48 of this new temple in the city of Jerusalem. When you get to the very end of this, Ezekiel 48, 35, the city shall be 18,000 cubits round about. And notice this, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Wow. Don't you just love the word of God? Man, it is so good. It is so rich. It's so enlightening of the eyes. It's what it does for us, amen? It lets us know that God has a plan for both his church and the nation of Israel. And this time is still coming. Now, I've probably run out of time because I'm looking at the clock. The children's ministry workers are like pulling their hair out saying, come on, Pastor Ben, Jeff's going to send off another meme that says something about the worst thing ever that happens is when the pastor goes past 9.30, excuse me, 11.30. <laughs> he, he lets me know on occasion that, hey, keep it, keep it tight. But um, what have we been saying thus far? Daniel 9.24, all of these things that are going to happen too, from first advent to second, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy see. So, Pastor Avery, you're telling me 70 weeks, you says was 490 years. You're saying in 490 years that this is going to take place? Yeah. 490 years from what? Well, you're going to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, 62 weeks. That's a total of 69. It's 70 Come back next week. We're going to dig in starting in chapter verse 25. And I'm going to show you exactly how 490 years, the 70 weeks, the 77s, fits perfectly into this plan. And why Sir Isaac Newton said from this one passage alone would be the confirming of Christianity because of the exactness of what Gabriel gave Daniel.